with issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 249 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan, proud owner of a dinosaur egg. I assume not a real dinosaur egg because probably the Natural History Museum would want that, so talk me for it. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have broadcast this, Jen. <laughs> no, it is a chocolate egg that's got dinosaurs inside it. It's studded inside with mini chocolate dinosaurs and ammonites. That sounds amazing. Where's that from? Other than I assume, Gary. It's from Chococo. 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 I don't know how you pronounce it. Chococo, if you're listening, we are available for sponsorship. (laughs) Send more dinosaurs my way. The chocolatey kind. Yes, please. That sounds fantastic. I get really weirdly sentimental about stuff like this, though. And I'm like, oh, but I don't want to break it. And so maybe the only way in, because you are going to have to smash it, Mm. is if I can get myself some paleontologist tools and pretend I'm on a dig. I just mimed a gentle (laughs) tapping there for the podcast listeners. It's a bit like the year my mum got me, and this does sound like a euphemism, and it isn't a chocolate otter from... um, from, Betty's? Yeah, from Betty's. Oh my God, I remember those. They were amazing. Yeah, it was fucking massive, and it probably cost her about 25 quid. And the rest. Well, I mean, this is like 10 years ago at least, so, you know, before inflation really hit. Anyway, this it was massive, this chocolate otter, and it was like great until I was like, well, how... How do I eat this? Like I'm gonna have to <laughs> have to club this otter to death. Like I'm basically gonna have to have like a ring oh, of no. bright water moment and a like serious otter tragedy here. I don't know if you've uh, anyone's watched Ring of Bright Water. Don't do it. It's <laughs> quite quite traumatic. It's the otter equivalent of Watership Down, isn't it? It's a sad time, but based on the uh, life of Terry Nutkins or something like that. There's a bit more to it than that. I'm Jen Offord and. Unbelievably, I had a lovely day out in Jaywick last week. Is Jaywick not a place that people go for lovely days usually, Jen? No, Mickey. It was a place that people went for lovely days uh, in roughly the uh, Victorian era, and then they kind of okay. like moved into the beach huts and stayed there. It's uh, yeah, it is. I think it is the most deprived small area in the UK or possibly just England. Not known as a sort of like banging destination. But I went to Hasty's Adventure Farm with Lyra and a group of other people last Wednesday. We saw some lambs and some alpacas and mostly what we did was, well, Lyra stood with her hands in running water. Just, <laughs> It was a big sandpit and it had like a sort of like water feature type thing. And she just stood with her hands in it for about 20 minutes. It wasn't that warm. I was a bit worried about how cold she was going to get. And she was like, I am washing my hands. And I was like, that's great, but you've been doing it for a really long time. Should we leave before you get hypothermia? Obviously, she doesn't know what hypothermia is. Love a pet in farm. Love a pet in zoo. Like anything to be close to the animals. Very yeah. excited. Bit jealous. Bit jealous. It was nice. You should, you should come out here sometime. We'll, uh, we'll go to Jaywick, Mick. Amazing. Count me in. You've already been to Clacton-on-Sea, so uh, it's a bit of a step down, <laughs> but not by much. Coming up, Hannah chats to Vinia Hamilton and Marta Vella, the Maltese actors and writers behind Blanket Ban, a play about Malta's total ban on abortion, which opens at the Southwark Playhouse on April the 25th. I chat to Sarah Knight, author of the No Fucks Given Guides, about her newest edition, Grow the Fuck Up, and how we could all do with a little refresher on adulting. Every day. Every day. <laughs> 
And in Jenny of the Blocks, I'm talking all things international football. Hey, hey, footy, 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 ball, ball, ball. And get your mashed potato ready, as in rated or dated, we watch Steven Spielberg's UFO blockbuster, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. I am joined by Sarah Knight, author of The No Fucks Given Guides, who is here today to tell me about the seventh in the series. I mean, how do you find the time? It's called Grow the Fuck Up, How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One. It's the third time on the podcast, Sarah. It's my turn to speak to you this time. Welcome back. Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. Literally everyone in the world, I think, knows about your books. But just in case there are any uninitiated people out there, can you tell us a little bit about the series, the the sort of philosophy underpinning them and how they came about? Well, the No Fucks Given Guides, as I call them collectively, uh, are a series of self-help or personal development book, whatever you call them. Uh, And I refer to my body of work as advice for people who hate being told what to do. Uh, (laughs) And I think that, you know, that's probably one of the reasons why they seem to have taken on a life of their own, because it's a little bit easier, a little bit funnier, a little bit swearier way into some of the stuff that we all need help with. You know, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck was my first book, and it's about deciding what's important to you and getting rid of what isn't and setting boundaries, you know, and I moved on to Get Your Shit Together, which is about motivation and goal setting. I've written a book about anxiety management and problem solving called Calm the Fuck Down. Uh, But taken in total, I consider them to be self-help for people who either don't think they like self-help or don't think they need self-help. How do you get someone who doesn't think they need self-help to engage in the process of self-betterment, as it were? Well, apparently you put fuck on the cover of the book and that (laughs) sends them running directly into your arms. Another thing that I try to do in all of my books is really start off from the beginning with some sort of acknowledgement that we're all in this together, that I have had all of these problems. I have overcome most of them, some of them I'm still working on, and really make somebody feel not that they're being preached to, but that they're being kind of taken along for a ride in which we all have a stake, um, you know, some to, to greater extents than others. But I think that's what people seem to be responding to is that I, I'm not shy about admitting to my own faults and foibles in the pages of these books. Your background is actually in publishing, right? You were a book editor. So how did you get to be how did you get to be so wise, Sarah? Where do, where does it all come from? <laughs> well, first of all, I was at a wedding recently and and somebody, you know, said what I did, and then this other person at the table said, What qualifies you to do that? And I said, Absolutely nothing. I am an, I am not a doctor, I'm not a therapist, I'm I'm not licensed in any way. It's true. I was a book editor for 15 years in New York City. I uh, had an extremely flourishing career when I decided to chuck it all and go freelance to work for myself. And that's a whole story that I tell across the many no fucks given guides. But in a nutshell, I was incredibly depressed. I was panicking. I was anxious all the time. I had all kinds of things going on in my life, a great relationship, a apartment that I had bought in Brooklyn, a thriving career, you know, what's wrong with this picture? And it turned out that I just wasn't really cut out for corporate life. And I wasn't feeling like I had the autonomy and the freedom to be who I am. You know, you show up in an office building, well, some people's office buildings, and you you just can't really be yourself because of the way corporate diplomacy works and your superiors that you're reporting to and all this stuff. And so I had to fight back against that by making an enormous change, taking what at the time felt like 
a life-changing risk to walk away from that career. And I thought I would go into business for myself as an editor. And I did. I hung out that shingle for a couple of months, but then I had the idea for my first book, The Life-Changing Magic of Not Giving a Fuck. Coincidentally, that is when I had that idea <laughs> uh, after, I had, after I had chucked it all. And I thought, you know, what I'm doing here, you know, it was an homage to Marie Kondo's Life-Changing Magic of Tidying, where I was doing for my mental space what she was advising you do for your closet, your playroom, and your apartment. Um, and I felt like I had something to say. And so I guess what qualified me is that I I said it. You know, I went, I went public with these ideas that you don't have to be ruled by guilt and obligation. I went public with these ideas that you can take charge of your own life. You don't have to care what other people think of your life decisions, but do it honestly and politely and, you know, as unselfishly as possible. These are all tenets of, of all of my books, which people are a little surprised by after I start with the F word. And then I come in and say, but don't be an asshole. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, most people that I hear from just say, you you gave me the permission to do what I wanted to do. You made it seem okay that I had these thoughts and feelings and desires. And I watched you do it. I heard you tell me how you did it. And now I feel like I can do it too. And that's very liberating. And people respond to liberating. Because it's interesting because some of the stuff that you kind of rejected in your career, this kind of like corporate dance that you have to do, is some of the stuff that you kind of touch on in this book. So can you tell me a little bit about what we're going to learn about in Grow the Fuck Up? Grow the Fuck Up is, I think, my my book with the most broad appeal. It is really about how to position yourself in the world as a grown-up who understands that they have to do grown-up things, even if they don't really like them, but who also tries to make it easier and more pleasant. I am here to try to make adulting easier and more pleasant for you. There's a chapter called, No, I Don't Wanna. And <laughs> in it, you know, I explain how you can make these things better so that you can perform better so that people treat you better. And that's why the subtitle is How to Be an Adult and Get Treated Like One, because it's a virtuous cycle. The more mature, responsible, and accountable you are, the better people are going to treat you. You're going to earn their trust. You're going to earn their respect. They're going to leave you alone to do your work because they know that you're reliable enough to get it done. They don't have to be, you know, hanging over your shoulder and poking you and prodding you all the time, which is really fucking annoying. <laughs> so everything that I'm trying to explain to folks in this book, and it started out, I wanted to target young people because... With the advent of TikTok, my books just really started taking off with, a, you know, kids under 25, I would say. Is that, can you call them kids if they're 25? Yeah, I think I'm 44. So I think if I'm twice as old as you, I can call you a kid. <laughs> and, but then as I was writing and kind of researching, I did an anonymous survey where I say, when I ask people what the, their biggest challenges were with being an adult and their biggest failings were with being an adult and what they wish they had known going into adulthood. And it became clear to me and my, and my editors that, People of all ages could use a refresher. <laughs> so in Grow the Fuck Up, I focus on those three pillars, maturity, responsibility, and accountability. And you can take that into a corporate career if you want, or you can just take it into your roommate situation. You know, but the idea is to be more self-aware, to practice better self-control, and to become more self-sufficient. Because at a certain point, nobody is legally or morally obligated to take care of you. And it's time for you to be able to do it yourself. When you're approaching something like this, what are the sort of top things that you see grown-ups doing and you think like, no, no, 
You, you can't be doing this shit. Come on. So, of course, I take inventory in my own head of what causes me to mutter under my breath, grow the fuck up. Jesus. <laughs> but really what it is, is I focus on things and I and I tried to build a theme of this throughout the book of things that we learned or should have learned or were, were probably taught if we had decent role models hanging around when we were when we were kids, but that we've somehow forgotten so one of the first things I address in the book is that adulting can be as simple as remembering your ABCs. It's not the alphabet. It's literally A is for action, B is for behavior, and C is for consequences. Your actions and behavior have consequences. And you've known that since you were eight years old. You know, if you let the dog out when you weren't supposed to, you got in trouble. You've known it since you were 12. If you talk back to your mother, you're going to get in trouble. You've known it since you were 15. If you get caught skipping school, you're going to get in trouble. We understand consequences. We've understood them for a very long time. But I see so many adults in my life from age 18 to 68, just ignoring what they already innately understand about consequences and plowing ahead and doing stupid shit and saying the wrong thing and getting in trouble for it and having bad outcomes. So what I really try to get people to focus on from the beginning of the book and all the way throughout is stop, take two seconds, remember my actions and behavior have consequences, and then do your best to engender the best consequences with your actions and behavior and to avoid the worst ones. I think it's a lot of the time, like I see them behaving in ways that are like that. And you're kind of like, did your parents never teach you manners, frankly? You know, Who stuff raised like you? That. Exactly. I often think that comes across as sort of like entitlement. Do you, th- do you think that's what it is? Do you think we kind of like, as we get a bit older, we that entitlement for some people kind of creeps in and causes some problems? I do think there, there are folks out there who act very entitled, and I'm not entirely sure that I can help somebody who's that far gone in mm. the kind of sociopathic uh, direction. <laughs> but what I do think I can help people do is just remember to go back to basics. There's a chapter in the book called Don't You Take That Tone With Me?, And it's all about how to communicate when you're feeling upset. You know, when you're a little kid and you don't know what to do with your emotions and you just kind of scream, you know, and like, that's okay because we all understand that developmentally that's where you are. But when you're 15 or 20 or 35 or 50, you need to be able to identify your emotions. What's making you feel that way? What can you do about it? And then communicate it. I, I call these the three C's, critical thinking, communication, and coping. And you need to be able to communicate it in a way that's productive for all involved, you know, and it's not to Pollyanna problems that you may be having, difficult relationships with bosses or loved ones, but it's not going to help anybody if you throw a tantrum. It's not going to help you. It's not going to advance your your cause. (laughs) And it's not going to help other people treat you like an adult. So it's really about that going back to basics. And if you didn't have those basics growing up, if you didn't have great role models, I am here from you. I am not just an anti-guru. I am an anti-guru in this book. I am a fun child free lady who says fuck all the time. <laughs> Listen to what I have to say. So Auntie Sarah, you're writing uh, a lot. <laughs> in the. She does call herself that in the book, by the way. It's not just me saying it. That would be weird. Yeah. Just, just in case the listener's unclear. You're writing a lot in the book, as we said, about things that we kind of assume people can do 
by the point of adulthood. Like, for example, as you've just mentioned, critical thinking. But, you know, Brexit happened. So obviously that is not universally true. Uh, (laughs) Self-awareness as well is something that you kind of think, you you hope people might have along the way picked up a little bit of of self-awareness. But they are quite hard things to master sometimes. Why do you think we struggle so much with these things? Do you think part of the root of it is basically that we don't really want to be accountable? Well, I think there's two different things going on here. One is with self-awareness and one is with accountability. So on the self-awareness front, I think that people just don't necessarily want to see the bad thing. You know, a lot of us kind of go through life being like, oh, I'm going to ignore that. I don't want to look at that. You know, it's sort of like, I don't want to know if there's a spider in the corner. Like, I'd rather not know. It can be there, but I don't want to face it. And I think that with self-awareness, what I'm really trying to explain to people in the book is never going to be able to communicate honestly with others and get what you need from them if you can't communicate honestly with yourself. You have to be able to say, how am I feeling? Why am I feeling this way? What can I do about it? And really interrogate your own emotions, your own desires, your own fears. And that's key. So I think part of the the issue that we have with self-awareness is we're just like, we don't want to feel bad. And so we kind of avoid some truths. But there's a reason they say the truth will set you free. It's really the first step toward being able to deal with it, whatever your reality is. And then accountability is, I think, the most important of these three pillars uh, of maturity, which involves self-awareness, responsibility, and then accountability. And it's also because it makes you feel bad to be wrong, Mm. you know? And this is the thing that I have struggled with the most. Um, I think I am a grade A adult, but it has taken me a lot of work, I would say, over the last five to 10 years to be able to accept criticism, constructive criticism, and to be able to let non-constructive criticism, you know, one star for this book, it has too many F words. It was on the tin. I I don't know what to tell you. But to not get riled up about that. It's taken me a long time to say I was wrong. I'm sorry. You know, and it's, it's just, it's how I'm wired. It's societal, but it's also just, it makes you feel bad to be criticized. Even if it's constructive meaning criticism, it feels like somebody is telling you, you are bad. You aren't enough. You are no good. And so we don't like to confront that. And it's like humility to be able to go to somebody and say, I messed up. I'm sorry. That was my fault. Let me take care of it. How can I make it up to you? Will you give me another chance? And these are all things that I talk about in that third part of the book because it ties in if maturity is about behavioral stuff mostly. And responsibility is about action. Accountability kind of ties in all of it. You know, you have to be mature enough to take the actions to apologize and clean up your mess and move forward. So one of the things you talk about in the book is around getting what you want and and asking for what you want. And part of that is knowing what you want. Like I had a career in the civil service before I became a journalist. So I kind of had a similar sort of situation to you. I was sort of doing this slightly corporate kind of thing and then decided like I'm not going to do this anymore it's miserable I hate it weirdly I had like massive imposter syndrome in that job but leaving there and becoming a journalist something that I am legitimately not in any way qualified to do Sarah I hope it doesn't show too much um (laughs) I I, it's one to no one (laughs) I just haven't really felt it that much in in this job I've just sort of been like okay right whatever and I take way more risks and I ask for things and I really feel like doesn't ask, doesn't get, right? Mm-hmm. So what the worst thing that could happen to you is that someone says, no, 
sorry Mm -hmm. you're not gonna have it and then you're no worse off but at least you know and it's something that particularly in the uk is something that we really makes us flinch we really shy away from it's not our kind of vibe at all but it's something that i really want to impart upon my daughter because i think women are particularly bad at it how do you do it like what what do you do how do you ask for what you want well, if I if I may buy right into your uh, assumption that women in particular are kind of bad at this, I really learned from my husband. We've been together for 23 years. He was among many different careers and hats he's worn. He was a real estate broker in New York City for about 10 of those years. And so he was a negotiator. Now, I had to negotiate in my job in publishing as an acquiring editor when I wanted to buy some writer's book from their literary agent and I was spending my publishing house's money and the literary agent was trying to get more and I was trying to spend less on behalf of my company. And I hated it because it always made me feel like if I'm lowballing them, they're going to feel insulted. Mm. If I overspend, I'm on the hook for it. It just, I hated the whole thing. I wanted everybody to say, this is our number. Yes or no. You know, I didn't want to go back and forth. And my husband said, you have to ask the questions you're not supposed to ask. Ask, do you have another offer on the table? Because in this like gentleman's game of book publishing, you're, it's like you're not supposed to call somebody on their bullshit. And then, and then the person either says, I, um, I, I don't feel comfortable telling you that. And that tells you something. Or they say, uh, I do. Is it over six figures? Uh, it's, it's, it's near there, you know, and you can, <laughs> you can tell from the answers to these questions, you can get enough more information to help you achieve your goal. So that's, one thing that I learned was ask the questions you're not supposed to ask. And it ties into this idea of just ask for what you want and, you know, maybe they won't give it to you. I mean, I had had a very uh, clear example of this happen recently. I can't unfortunately talk too much about it because it involves a, a movie deal for my first book. But I basically, you know, asked a series of questions that that I wasn't supposed to ask. And the answers led me to the outcome that I that I wanted. And so I do think that it's really important to tell people, especially young women who are socialized to serve and mm-hmm. to make people feel comfortable, to not rock the boat, to make sure everybody has what they want and need. You know, young boys are socialized to win. Yeah. They're socialized to get ahead by any means necessary. It doesn't mean that they will all take advantage of any means necessary. It doesn't mean that every boy grows into a man who wants to win at all costs and, and doesn't care how he does it. But that is what we expect from boys and what we expect from girls is don't rock the boat, make sure everybody's okay. Can I get you anything? Can I do anything for you? And so I do think it's important to say, I need these things for myself. And if I don't ask for them, I can't get them. You know, you can't get what you don't ask for. So I agree with you that it's something that we need to be able to do. And it is, it feels, you know, nerve wracking to some of us. But what I always say is I'm kind of like a drug dealer in the sense that I tell people, just try it. Just try it once. I bet you're going to like it, you know? And once you do it once or twice, you're like, oh, that wasn't so scary after all. Don't do drugs, kids. I was listening to your podcast this morning because you have a podcast as well, No Fucks Given with Sarah Knight. And I was listening to one this morning about being an adult. And one of the just best pieces of advice I think I've ever encountered about asking for what you want is to ask people what you have to do to get what you want, which I just thought was genius. I swear by this. And I actually, I did this in a little example that I just told you, I can't really elaborate on. 
with the movie stuff, I, I took my own advice. And, you know, instead of saying, you know, here's what I want, if if you feel like there's going to be some resistance, if you want to cut straight to the point, you can say, to, whether it's to a romantic partner or to your big boss, what do I have to do to get you to give me what I want? You know, if you're saying, I, I really want a promotion and they're saying no, the, the real question is, okay, what do I have to do to get promoted? You tell me. Because so many opportunities are lost and so much communication is kind of goes foggy between two people, again, either personal or professional, where you ask for one thing and the person says no, you don't know, like there there could be a way to get to yes. And so just ask them, just what what do I have to do? And in the case of, for example, getting a promotion, if they say there really isn't anything, it's it's not in the budget or there won't be an opening for this spot for until so-and-so leaves or whatever, then you've got an answer that you can work with. And it might mean looking for another job, but at least you know that it's not, it wasn't because of your performance. It isn't because your boss doesn't believe in promotions. You know, you've, they've, you've gotten an answer that you can work with. So yeah, I really, I really do swear by that. What do I have to do to get you to give me what I want? The books have obviously received a lot of praise. There's seven books, there's three journals. The Seven books is, you know, a lot of not giving a fuck. What's next? <laughs> what is next for you, Sarah? Have you solved all of our problems? That is a very good question. I have some ideas percolating. I do have a book under contract, which is more kind of humorous personal essays. It's something that I got settled with my publishers in the US and the UK before the pandemic. And then everybody's favorite anti-guru did not fare very well during the pandemic. I, I was not able to get any words out onto the page. Or actually, I did get a lot of them out, but they were terrible. And so I took a little kind of mental break. That's when I started the podcast to do something a little bit different. So I do have that book to go back to, but I also have, I have two ideas for further no fucks given guides. And I really do want to try my hand at fiction. When I was a book editor, I did a lot of different kinds of books, uh, but I my sort of bread and butter was with thrillers and crime and suspense. I edited Jessica Knowles' Luckiest Girl Alive, which was the best-selling debut fiction in the US when it came out. I edited Gillian Flynn. And I have just a real love for the genre. And I have, have an idea percolating that I think I might want to try my hand at sometime. So we'll see about that. <laughs> but yeah, it could be it could be one of many things next. That sounds very exciting. Where can we follow you on social media to keep up to date with those percolating ideas? You can find me at Sarah Knight Author on TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. I'm MC Snugs on Twitter because uh, I haven't been able to give up that that name yet. I just like it. M-C-S-N-U-G-Z. And uh, you can also just go to sarahnight.com and find all of my stuff, all of my podcast episodes, all of my books, and all of my social media stuff. And sign up for the newsletter, my No Fucks Given newsletter, the newsletter for people who hate newsletters. Grow the fuck up. How to be an adult and get treated like one is published in the UK by Quercus as of April the 4th. Thank you so much for chatting to me and good luck with the book. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate being back. Hello, Hannah here. I'm joined by Davinia Hamilton and Marta Vella, writers and stars of Blanket Ban, which opens at the Southwark Playhouse on the 25th of April. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Blanket Ban is about the Blanket Ban in Malta, the only 
EU country to ban abortion entirely. Other than basic fury and outrage, what was it that drew you to this? I'm going to start with you, Marta. To be honest, Davini and I have been friends for a long time now and we're both actors. We're both obviously um, passionate about uh, politics and uh, activism. We had been talking for a really long time about just wanting to do a piece of work together. And we, you know, wanted it to be something that we're incredibly passionate about. And it all started when when I was over at Dabs for some dinner. It was the day that Malta held its first pro-choice rally in 2019. And we got talking and I think it was only, you know, around 100 or 150 people. And we were really impressed and inspired by these people turning up and being seen as pro-choice mm. and being vocal as pro-choice. And, you know, making art is our form of activism, really. Mm. Davinia was already involved with Abortion Rights UK. She worked in the field already. It was kind of like um, we really hit the nail on the head um, on the topic that really mattered to us, that would really, you know, drive us to go on this journey together. Davinia? For me, I mean, it was similar. Abortion activism is something that I've been interested in for a while. And for me... You know, growing up in Malta, I experienced firsthand the consequences of an abortion ban. You'd hear about people who were pregnant and then suddenly weren't pregnant anymore, but there's no abortion in Malta. So what's happened? They've obviously travelled, but nobody said anything about it. Or, you know, some friends of mine and I, when we were at sixth form had spoken about saving up some money together, a sort of kitty, mm. so that if one of us were to get pregnant, then we would have enough money to travel to the UK. And that was a, a kind of like early form of solidarity mm. that we were practicing without knowing what it was. I saw lots of friends of mine have pregnancy scares and being completely desperate and knowing a lot of lore, like dangerous home cures for pregnancy mm. looking back on them now i'm thinking my god if people actually did them they would have really hurt themselves and maybe some people did but this was kind of the fabric of my adolescence of my formation as an adult and so this issue has been close to my heart for a long time and then in 2019 i volunteered with abortion rights uk which is the uk's uh, national abortion rights campaign I'm now a member of their executive committee, so I've done work with them. And I think, as, as Marta said, you know, all these kind of factors came together. We married our interests in a way and kind of distilled them into this show. So tell me how you went about writing it. So basically, as Marta said, we, we were having this dinner at my house and talking about the news and talking about what was happening in Malta. And we had this idea that we have to do something. And so we thought, OK, we'll write a play and we'll start researching for this play because we didn't want to just regurgitate material that you could easily find from a Google search. We wanted to actually, you know, do our own research, curate our own material. So we started talking about it probably towards the end of 2019 and then had scheduled to start research in March 2020. And then that was March 2020. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then suddenly everything changed. Marta went to Malta for lockdown. I stayed here in the UK, in London, and we thought we're just going to work through it. Like we're not going to let this put a spanner in the works. We just have to embrace the limitations that we've got. And that meant that suddenly our interviews were done over Zoom. And that was actually a boon because 
One, it gave us access to people who we would have had to travel to interview otherwise. And suddenly we were having access to people internationally. And two, it informed the format of the show because instead of kind of, you know, trying to pretend that we didn't use Zoom, (laughs) the Zoom aesthetic is very much present in the show. Yeah. I mean, we found that from the podcast point of view is that suddenly Mm -hmm. a lot of really good people were available to interview. Now, you performed this at the Fringe in Edinburgh last year. And that came just after the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which obviously was terrible for the women of America. But to be quite cynical was probably a bit of a bone for your marketing. Tell me what it was like to perform this within that atmosphere. The day when Roe v. Wade was overturned, we had rehearsal and we were devastated. And there was real sadness that that we were carrying And what that did was make the play even more current, Mm. even more urgent. What had happened on on sort of a local level was the pandemic made the play really urgent because Malta is an island, so people couldn't travel and didn't have an out as they did before. Mm. Um, So they were lumped with these unwanted pregnancies. When then Roe v. Wade happened, obviously... You know, in America, the land of the free, it just made us realize how human rights are just so vulnerable and they can be taken away at any moment. Mm-hmm. If it can happen there, you know, in a in a first world country with all the resources and you know, then we really need to shake ourselves up and look around as to what is happening in the world in terms of you know, yes, did it make sort of the play have a bit of a better platform or, you know, um, have more of a spotlight on it? Mm. Probably did. And we're grateful to that. What it definitely did was that we had many American women in the audience uh, watching the show Mm. at the Fringe. And it was almost, you know, after every show, we had um, someone from the audience who just came up to us and either just thanked us for making Mm. it or just opened up and shared their own personal story mm. or shared their anger and frustration mm. because this was just, you know, happening to them. And that probably, yes, did make it more current in terms of, you know, more more of a hot potato. Mm. But I don't think that I realized quite before making the show how much of a universal issue abortion is and how directly you're affected by it if you're a woman or if you know you're a person who can get pregnant and i really think that that sort of united us in it mm. what i also wanted to add with with what davinia said um as to sort of making the play we obviously started with the straightforward stuff let's find out what the law actually says let's talk to you know doctors and activists and lawyers and journalists for us to really update ourselves with the context Mm. it was actually when we then started you know digging in deeper not just speaking to women who had illegal abortions but even looking at you know this is a result of misogyny this is a result of the patriarchy why is this happening on an island that in many other fields um, otherwise is very progressive you know we have amazing um transgender rights we keep coming first in rankings for uh, queer rights free healthcare free education 
free child um, care. So, you know, on, on, on paper, the minorities are really seen mm. and well taken care of in Malta, right? But then there's this just, you know, one issue. And it was this information that was really puzzling us and really affecting us personally. That's when we sort of wrote ourselves in the show. Yeah. And okay. what was happening to us. And for example, the overturning of, of Roe v. Wade. And uh, there's another prominent case happening in Malta of an American tourist, Andrea Prudente, whose, whose waters broke on holiday. She was 16 weeks pregnant and on holiday in Malta. Basically, the, the pregnancy wasn't viable anymore. She was rushed to hospital. And in any other circumstance, you know, in any other country, they would have given her a life-saving abortion. Yeah. But in Malta, they were like, oh, no, we can't do that. So they left her kind of stuck in a bed for, what was it, a week or nine days? Nine days. Nine days. Because there was still a fetal heartbeat. So even though this pregnancy had virtually zero chance of surviving, and this was a wanted pregnancy, they just would not do anything unless she was imminently dying. So unless she developed sepsis and then, you know, mm. was in danger of death, they would have done something. So all these horrendous updates, yeah. basically, have now been written in the show as well. Yeah. It was Martin Luther King Day this week, so let's, let's quote him. It feels like there has been a bend towards justice in the last couple of years. You know, Ireland, Northern Ireland, the Isle of Man, Gibraltar. It's been, there has been forward momentum. Then you hit the roadblock of Roe v. Wade. Has this put Malta back? How close is it of change? Does it seem impossible at the moment? I kind of go back and forth in my thoughts a little bit. Sometimes I feel like five years ago, I wouldn't even have thought that this conversation would have been possible. Because when I was growing up there, it was such a taboo. And every single survey claimed that the whole population was unanimously anti-choice. Even stating in public that you thought maybe abortion wasn't always a terrible thing, then you were stigmatized. So things have changed, they have shifted. And I think in the aftermath of the uh, Andrea Prudente case, there has absolutely been a discussion. And in fact, there's been a bill proposed that if it passes would mean that abortion would be offered in the event of grievous danger to the life or health of the pregnant person. Obviously, there's been a huge backlash against that from the antis. They think, oh, no, we, we don't actually want to save women. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. So sometimes it feels like it's possible that in my lifetime I will see a change. And sometimes it feels so remote. I think it's inevitable. So I do think it will slowly happen. I think what is a bit uncomfortable to witness is... You know that politicians, off of the back of the Andrea Prudente case, are saying things such as, this is not an abortion, this is the termination of a pregnancy. <laughs> so we're really, you know, sugarcoating things and mm -hmm. playing the political card that, mm -hmm. that we need to really sugarcoat what they think is, you know, an ugly truth. Mm -hmm. And the conversation is still very much about, you know, a hierarchy of what situation would be acceptable mm. to get an abortion, which is all wrong. On the other hand, there is a conversation. Mm. Change like this doesn't necessarily happen overnight. You know, it can happen. It has to happen over generations. My biggest fear, which I didn't have before Roe v. Wade, was that 
I mean definitely, naively, I thought that when progress happened, it mm. happened. Witnessing yeah. those rights being taken away shook me to the core. So now, if abortion is decriminalized, and of course it should be, if, you know, right now we're, we're only talking about life-saving abortions in non-viable pregnancies, great if we achieve all of this. Mm. But what I'm, what I'm feeling, which I didn't necessarily, or, or I wasn't aware of before, is just at the same time as I'm celebrating this progress being made, I'm also crippled by fear that it can just be taken away. Yeah. And for example, the current government is a, is a, is a labor socialist government. So um, it introduced the morning after pill. It introduced uh, gay, gay, gay marriage, civil unions, gay adoptions. And with this, this abortion conversation, they were the first politicians who very, very, very lately changed their minds because we have, we quoted the prime minister as, you know, as anti-choice last, year. last summer. But his, his latest speech is, a, this is not a black and white issue. Mm-hmm. We need to listen to these women, which is, you know, great. great. Doing a rewrite for the right reasons. <laughs> yeah, great. But then again, the oppositions is still really, really, you know, steadfast, unchangeable in the abortion is murder rhetoric. So I kind of feel like, great, if we get it, but when at some point inevitably there will be a change in government, I am, you know, terrified that it will all be reversed again. Which is why we can never stop fighting. Yeah. We yeah. can never stop talking. Yeah. The thing that you were saying about people being scared to say it out loud, because that's what they discovered in Ireland, was that everybody yeah. kind of secretly thought it was okay but didn't want to say so. So what you need is a yeah. lot of people saying it's okay. My dream direct action, which I don't know if this could ever happen, but I've always said, like, it would be amazing if we could get thousands of Maltese women to say, I had an abortion. I had an abortion. Because this is what happened in the States back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. This is what happened. with, And this is what needs to happen. Because if you have tens of thousands of women going, I had an abortion, what are you going to do? Imprison all of us? Mm-hmm. No, you're not. You're not. And that's going to make people realize that it's so much more common than they think. So this is another thing that we found during our research, that even though there's a blanket ban on abortion, so essentially under every circumstance, you can't get an abortion, blah, blah, blah. And yet abortion still basically happens at the same rate in Malta as it does as the rest of the world. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah, of course it does. Which means that of the thousands of women who turn up to the like anti-choice marches, some of them have had abortions too. Now you've had some support from from some groups with this including our friends at the abortion support network so i wondered if there was any groups that you wanted to plug that people could if they've got any money they could send it over to help women in malta yeah so um abortion support network is definitely one of them we also work with women on web women on web yeah and which is another international organization that sends pills to women who don't have access to abortion in countries like malta mm. We also always encourage people in the UK to join Abortion Rights as members. It's just £2 a month. And Abortion Rights is a member-led campaign. If you become a member, like you really, really have the opportunity to shape the campaign. And the reason that, that, I, that we do this is we can't be complacent in the UK mm. either because a lot of people don't actually know what the law in the UK is. And it's a lot more precarious than we think. Abortion in the UK is still governed by the Offences Against the Person yeah. Act of 18. 18- 
1961, which says that if you procure an abortion, then you can face up to a lifetime in prison. There was the 1967 Abortion Act, which said, okay, but if you have the permission of two doctors, then you can have an abortion if they sign off on it, which is great, cool. But you have situations where people, for whatever reason, can't make the doctor's appointment. So for example, if you are in a precarious job, if you can't get leave to go to the appointment, if you already have children, which is you know, a, a huge percentage of people who have abortions already have children. So if you've already got kids and you can't afford childcare to go to the appointment, if you live in a in a rural area where public transport doesn't allow for you to make the appointment mm. on time, or if you're in a coercive relationship where your partner is always keeping tabs on you, then you can't make the appointment. And then you're stuck with either going through a pregnancy that you don't want to go through and possibly that having completely life-changing effects or ordering pills online. And because you need the permission of two doctors, if you order pills online without their permission, you face life in prison. And there were two, two women last year who were in the courts for this. And we've seen the numbers of people who are being seen by police for taking illegal or taking pills illegally, so to speak, has risen quite a lot over the last couple of years in the UK. And a lot of people don't know that. And I think that the effect that the reversal of Roe v. Wade had was that the anti-choice people here saw that as a win for them too. Yeah. And thought, oh, well, if they can make a change there, there's no reason we can't do it here. We've seen a lot more activity, anti-choice activity and harassment outside abortion clinics, for example, which is horrible. It's really, really horrible. It's bullying behavior. But I guess all of that to say that even in the UK, we cannot be complacent. And we really do encourage people to join abortion rights. And, you know, if you're passionate about this sort of thing, join in the campaign. Great. One last question for you. Chalkline, the theatre company that you are involved with, you're based in Luton, aren't you? The founder of Chalkline is one of our directors, Sam Edmonds. He then teamed up with Vikesh Godwani, who's the second director and co-director of, of, of Chalkline, of course. Yes, but Sam is based in Luton, grew up in Luton, and his, his sort of first foray into theatre happened there. A lot of the work that Chalkline does, you know, is very politically driven. And I think, you know, that, that, that there's a lot of passion and commitment towards really, you know, sending strong messages out there through theatre. And a lot of our engagement side of, you know, Blanket Ban and, and, and other projects that Chalkline do always has a very strong Luton connection. Yeah, it's much maligned Luton, I think. Mm -hmm. You open on the 25th of April at the Southwark Playhouse. Best of luck with it. And thanks ever so much for joining us. Thank Thank you you so so much. much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we shoot and indeed we score as we discuss all things women's sport. First of all, massive congratulations to the Lionesses who are at it again, or at least they were last week at Wembley as they took on Brazil in the 2022 Finalissima. I think it is actually Spanish, so probably not pronounced like that. That was an attempt at some sort of vague Italian accent. Apologies to all Italians everywhere and indeed Spanish people. 
What's the finalissima, I hear you ask? It's the Conmebol UEFA Cup of Champions. And what are they? Well, UEFA is the European Football Association and Conmebol, C-O-N-M-E-B-O-L. There is probably a different way of saying that, but if I'm honest, I think that is an acronym that needs a bit of work. That is the South American Football Confederation. Why couldn't it be SAFC or something that is actually pronounceable? Genuinely interested if you have an answer to this at me. Anyway, what it actually is, is a competition whereby the champions of Europe play the champions of South America. And I don't know if you've been paying attention, but Brazil are historically quite good at football. In fairness, they're not ranked as highly as England by FIFA, but the FIFA rankings are quite often an absolute mystery if you look at the men's game. So look, it's taken me a while to get to the point here, but England won 4-2 on penalties after the match finished 1-all. Ella Toon scored in the 23rd minute and Alves de Silva equalised in the 93rd. Winning on penalties, eh? Is there nothing this England side can't do? It's looking great in terms of the international scene. Organisers of the Women's World Cup, which is hosted in Australia and New Zealand this summer, announced this morning, that is Tuesday morning, that they've sold 650,000 tickets already with 100 days left to go. And they are on course to shift a record-breaking 1.5 million. I have no idea how they calculate that, but whatever, let's roll with it. England will play tournament hosts Australia in an international friendly tonight. So you'll know by the time you listen to this on Wednesday how that went down. I think Australia are pretty good. I'll be interested to see how that plays out. I saw them play at the last World Cup in 2019 over in Nice and their fan base are a lot. So this is excellent stuff, but this is women's sport. So naturally, I have bad news for you. In a new report published by Football Beyond Borders and Youth Beyond Borders, research conducted amongst inner city girls suggests that still only one in four of the teenage girls surveyed watch women's football, that only 17% belong to a football club, and that 63% are unable to name any of the lionesses. These are depressing findings after that incredible moment when England won the Euro last year. A moment that meant so much to so many women, regardless of how they feel about football or even sport. A moment that had us sobbing up and down the country because, well, we are terribly emotional, aren't we? Speaking to The Guardian, Football Beyond Borders head of brand Salon Andy Hickman said that the relationship between teenage girls and football wasn't just about the physical space, but also the cultural space. Teenage boys, she said, dictate culture still and the hierarchy of cool and men's football is cooler than women's football to young men. I want to link this now seamlessly to another report I read in The Guardian last week about research compiled by England hockey international Tess Howard for the Sport Education and Society Journal, which found that 70% of girls drop out of sport at school because of clothing and body-related issues. Some of the issues noted were around feeling sexualised by their uniforms. I mean, how repulsive is is that (laughs) as a concept? But also that they feared masculinisation or the perception that they were butch or gay. I don't think that these are particularly new ideas, concepts, whatever. I think we've known for many, many years that girls feel uncomfortable playing sport when they hit puberty and they start to feel more body conscious. We've known for many, many years that sport is perceived as masculine and this is not high on the list of how many teenage girls want to be viewed. When you look at this in the context of Football Beyond Borders research as well, coolness is high stakes when you're that age, isn't it? But how are we still letting men define what is cool in 2023 and what is feminine? Why are we not writing our own script here? 
Silly, silly girls, right? Well, only 10% of those silly girls are meeting physical activity health standards by the age of 14, which I find a really, really shocking statistic. And we know this and we know why. The point that I struggle to understand is how, after so many years of this, this isn't changing. That's enough for me this week. I will be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mickey, which film did you make me watch last night that took me almost as long as the film itself to actually find because there are so many goddamn versions of it? <laughs> there are quite a few versions of it, aren't there? So there many. Were three I was that confused. kept coming up. Oh, there were about six. Special edition, director's cut, theatrical version is what I watched if you're interested. Which one did you watch? God, I don't know. I think I went for whatever one looked was like the shortest, shortest. by about eight <laughs> minutes or something like that. Uh-huh, yeah. So, this week we watched Steven Spielberg's Lights, Spaceships, Action in the Second Half, UFO movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which, although released in the US in November 1977, only landed in the UK in March 1978. Starring men, men and more men, <laughs> it saw director Steven Spielberg teaming up once more with Jaws star Richard Dreyfus, who plays Roy Neary, an everyday working-class linesman in Indiana whose life changes after an encounter with an unidentified flying object. Diversity comes courtesy of fellow believer Gillian, played with very little to say by Melinda Dillon, and Francois Truffaut, a scientist Claude Lacombe, who is, as you can guess, French. Close Encounters was Spielberg's very next film after 1975's Jaws. You all know how I feel about Jaws. We Love do. it. So you may think that Dreyfus was a shoo-in. Not so. Steve McQueen was Spielberg's first choice, but although McQueen was impressed with the script, he turned down the role as he was unable to cry on cue. Dreyfus wasn't even next on the list, with James Kahn, Dustin Hoffman, Al Pacino and Gene Hatman all turning down the part. Truth is, Dreyfus wasn't even on the list, but used the time filming Jaws to convince Spielberg to cast him as Neary. There is a storytelling similarity to Jaws here too, a slow build-up developing characters with occasional dramatic glimpses of our non-human creatures and what they can do before a second act showdown. Jaws reared his head again as various technical and budgetary problems occurred during Close Encounters filming, causing a still-scarred Spielberg to call the production twice as bad and twice as expensive as Jaws. Now then, what of that title? Close Encounters, like, duh, sure, I know what that means. But what is the third kind malarkey about, I hear you ask? I know I certainly wondered. Now, that bit of the title is derived from ufologist, that is a real word, I promise, J. Allen Hynek's classification of Close Encounters with Extraterrestrials, in which the third kind denotes human observations of extraterrestrials or animate beings. And indeed, we do get to see the ETs in a scene which reveals the sharp imagination that creates spaceships of vast scope and display can still only come up with aliens that look a little bit like my grandma. <laughs> they, they were a bit shit, weren't they? <laughs> Diversity Watch, though, Jen. Those tiny my grandma aliens in the final scenes were played by 50 local Alabama girls aged about six. And girls were specifically requested by Spielberg because, quote, they move more gracefully than boys. I can disprove that theory, but fine, sure. I am like one of the clumsiest humans <laughs> in the world. <laughs> 
Made on a production budget of $19.4 million, it wouldn't have been made at all had Columbia Pictures even guessed at that figure. Spielberg, well, he fibbed a bit, claiming production would come in at $2.7 million, a sum which, in the end, didn't even cover the cost of the visual effects. Still, Close Encounters eventually grossed more than $300 million worldwide, making it the most successful Columbia Pictures film at that time. Jen, I'm guessing from our little chat at the top that you have not seen Close Encounters in any of its cuts before. No, the little boy looks sort of familiar to me, and I'm sure I've seen. I'm sure I've seen the mashed potato before, but no, I've not seen it. No, I've definitely seen mashed potato before. Do you mean the specific mashed potato? <laughs> I t- yeah, I feel like the bit with the mashed potato was sort of familiar, but maybe I've seen like a a pastiche, a mashdish. Have you seen E.T. out of curiosity? We watched it for this very podcast, Michaela Newman. Oh, fucking hell, we did, didn't we? Yeah. We did, yeah. Of course. I wondered why I'd watched that recently. <laughs> I, I might say sort of early doors, there are some parallels here. <laughs> <laughs> Same director, who'd have thought it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, the plot of Close Encounters, and I'm going to keep it as snappy as I can, unlike the first hour and 20 mm. minutes of this 135 minute long film. It is a movie of two sort of parallel narratives. In one, a coalition of scientists led by Lacom, that's our Frenchman. Whose personality is French. <laughs> he was a very famous French director that they, they got in to do his only acting role outside of one of his own films. Oh. Little fact for you. Mm. Anyway, he and his scientists travel around the world investigating weird phenomena, such as the appearance of a squadron of planes missing since 1945 and the return of a warship in the middle of the Gobi Desert. They figure out it's probably all down to aliens and also work out how to communicate with them using musical notes. This wins them some coordinates to Devil's Tower, a uniquely shaped natural monument in Wyoming. The US military works hard to keep a lid on the whole drama, broadcasting fake news of a toxic gas spill. Meanwhile, baby Barry, and obviously I do know it happens, but who the fuck calls a baby Barry? (laughs) It was a different time, literally. (laughs) (laughs) Baby Barry is transfixed when his toys start operating on their own. His mum, Gillian, watches her three-year-old wander outside on his own for a bit before giving chase. (laughs) She lets him get so far. Oh, he's out of the light. He's out of the house. That's when you should have been alerted. Around the same time, large-scale power outages begin rolling through the Muncie, Indiana area, forcing electrician Roy Neary to investigate. While he gets his bearings, Roy experiences a close encounter with a UFO, and when it flies over his truck, it lightly burns the side of his face with its lights and begins an all-consuming obsession. Now then, Roy can't stop making models of an unusual mountain shape, and Barry's mum, Gillian, is similarly obsessed, sketching the unique mountain image over and over again. Soon after, she is basically terrorised in her own home by a UFO, which descends from the clouds, then abducts Barry. I say abducts, like, really, really slowly. She could totally have stopped him getting out of that massive cat flap, right? (laughs) Why is the cat flap that big? Some sort of dog, I imagine. They have dog flaps... Which, it, it seems weird for burglars for me. They're, it's in Home Alone as well. It's so weird. It strikes me as a dangerous game to play with a dog, but okay, fine. We digress. Back with the Nearies, Roy's wife, Ronnie, just doesn't understand him. 
perhaps because he never explains what's happening, but instead trashes their house. Then, as she's leaving, follows her around shouting, listen, listen, but never actually telling her anything. Maybe that's why she doesn't understand, Roy. I don't know. I'm not a relationship counsellor. Anyway, she quite understandably takes the kids to her sister's. Luckily, his wife and kids aren't important at all because aliens. While he's on the phone, sort of half trying to win her back, sort of half shouting at her for abandoning him, he catches the toxic gas fake news broadcast on the telly and recognises the mountain he's been modelling. Therefore, hot foots it to Wyoming. All of this takes up the first hour and 20 minutes, yet feels interminable in places. I was at this point gutted to learn there was still another hour to go. However, it is a pacey old finale as Roy, who bumps into Gillian on the way, skips past the military to climb Devil's Tower and witness the UFO's return and converse with the scientist. UFOs gradually appear by the dozens and it really is quite beautiful to look at, including an enormous mothership which lands to release many abductees from different eras and strangely unaged. World War II pilots, sailors, adults, children, animals and hey there baby Barry who reunites <laughs> with his mum. Roy is handpicked by the ETs to get inside the mothership and go on adventures in space, which he does without hesitation. What wife and kids, am I right? <laughs> I'm right. <laughs> Big question first, Jen. Would you ever use denim cut-offs as pyjama bottoms? No, that would be horribly uncomfortable. I was absolutely staggered by Gillian's choice of PJs. I didn't even notice that, Mick. I mean, bearing in mind, let's not talk about Jack Nicholson, but um, I, I didn't even notice that, but I'd have been horrified if I'd seen it. Was it thick denim or were we talking about more of a sort of like chambray number? No, it was old school kind of cut-off denim shorts that she was kipping in before baby Barry well she's sleeping while Barry's watching his toys wander about which is kind of magical there are bits in the first half or the first hour and 20 minutes that are are really lovely did you find that lovely the toys I found that horrifically creepy and also (laughs) quite a lot like E.T. doesn't Uh, something like that happen in E.T.? I was like when I saw that bit I was a bit like I've been here before Maybe that's why it seemed familiar, because it is so like the beginning of E.T. There's like a mum who's not mothering very well and there's some cute small blonde children and there's some toys that come alive by themselves. It did feel very similar to me. I guess it's Spielberg's version of Aliens. I don't know. I don't... And the first, so the first bit, they're in the desert and it's just like, it's a lot of shouting over an engine. Mm-hmm. And I could barely understand what they were saying. And I was a bit like, what is going on? All right, there's some planes. They've been there a while. Who's this guy? I can't actually hear what you're saying to each other. This is not ideal. And so I have to say, they did lose me quite early on in, Mm -hmm. in the the first act. And the first act is long. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That first act is really... For all its moments where you're like, that's quite exciting or terrifying, depending on how you look at it. Yeah. It is really quite boring. I get the whole building of anticipation. I get that that's the thing. I love that in Jaws. I get that we have to see the breakdown of Mm. those compelled by the aliens to get to Devil's Tower to see them being absolutely consumed by it. But I still feel like it could have been way snappier. And those huge bits of science babble nearly lost me completely. Mm. They just felt really unnecessary. I didn't find him like particularly... I mean, like you say, he's just completely obsessed with 
with the aliens. I know that's the point. I know I know that is literally the point of it. But you're sort of watching his kids crying at, at dinner time and stuff, and you're like, this is very nice. This is clearly quite distressing for them, and yet yeah. you don't seem to have cottoned onto that like at all. I think it's quite interesting because this was a huge mainstream blockbuster of mm. a film, right? And yet, I, I don't know that it would it has the components that we would associate with a blockbuster. So the the main character suffers a mental breakdown. He loses his job. His family walks out on him. Mm. One of the other main characters talks in French all the time and is translated throughout, <laughs> which you wouldn't necessarily think of as a blockbuster, certainly not an American one. And a young child, baby Barry, is kidnapped from his mother in a scene that is, it is terrifying. Yeah. That bit is like pure poltergeist. Yeah, it's horrible. It's really horrible. And yet this is a mainstream family blockbuster. I don't think it's a terribly family-friendly film. I was going to ask you before I watched it, look, is this something I can watch with Lyra in the room? But bearing in mind, Lyra didn't, like, one minute of ET and Lyra was like, I don't like it, mommy. I just thought, I'm not even going <laughs> to bother. I'm just going to assume that's not okay. Um, yeah. I think I would have found a lot of that quite frightening as a young child. Mm. And you're right. The scene where the, where the boy is abducted is is horrible. But I think... I wonder if the reason why it's so successful is because people are kind of obsessed with aliens, aren't they? Like a lot of people mm. think they've seen them. A lot of people are like, it, it is a kind of quite universal thing, isn't it? It absolutely is. And I do think you're right. I think that's why it would appeal to a lot of people. Mm. But I also think the other key to its success is it's not massively about the aliens. It's about our our, as represented by mm. the characters in Close Encounters, response to it. Are we going to stop and be friendly like the guy with the sign says? Or is it going to be a military takeover? The military going to let the scientists actually communicate? Or is it going to be like Independence Day where mm. it's all out war kind of thing? Mm. How would we react to alien life? I think it's an interesting study in that, for sure. Mm. I was kind of expecting it to be... I was expecting there to be hostility, shall we say. And then obviously the little girls from the school came out in their Nana costumes and it was all quite <laughs> gentle and, and peaceful and, and nice. So I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting it to be a bit more like, yeah, I was expecting there to be more hostility from the aliens because it was kind of built up as if that might be what would... Well, I mean, they've just abducted a small child. So they're not like, you know, they're kind of dickheads. I think you're right that I didn't expect hostility i think i i think i knew about the film even though i'd never seen it before mm. so i wasn't expecting hostility but there is a tension there that is ominous because the, the whole point is no one knows what they are saying or mm. why they're here and i think actually it's quite refreshing to watch nowadays and a film about aliens about extraterrestrials about ufos where earth is quite welcoming they are just like, oh, hello, what do you want to talk to us about? And trying to organise that conversation rather than set up to fight. There's The military are there, but they don't look like they're ready to sort of pounce unless they're going to dust them and send them to sleep. But at the same time, even though the alien life forms are supposed to be friendly, like you say, when the little girls in the nano costumes come out, you're like, oh, yeah, that's nice. Look at them pointing. They do really gun for Gillian in order to kidnap baby Barry. That is yeah. quite a violent episode. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it, that that is, I would say, hostile. <laughs> like, like that is hostile. it's it's more than hostile. It's fucking aggressive. And they've clearly been nicking people for ages. 
Well, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not a very kind act, is it, to abduct people? So, like, and what are they doing it for? Why are they abducting them? Are they going to like carry out experiments on them? Are they just they just want to chat to them? Like, what's what's the point? I think maybe Roy deserves a good probing after his terrible attitude towards his wife and children. He skips on board the spaceship like, yeah, we're all going to be pals. He doesn't know. We yeah, don't know. Yeah, after he's copped off with uh, with Barry's mum. Oh, I shouted at the screen. You've got a wife and kids, you prick. Like just an interchangeable blonde in his life. Oh, it made me so annoyed. It's so unnecessary. It was so unnecessary. It was unnecessary. They tonged each other. Ugh. It was really unnecessary. I didn't understand why they'd done that. And I, did, I, I didn't understand, like, I think he's supposed to be a sympathetic character, but I didn't mm. find I had a huge amount of sympathy for him, to be honest. I agree. Which is interesting, because in the other cuts when I was reading about them, obviously I did not watch them, because who <laughs> has that time to spare? But yeah. in one of the Spielberg cuts, he takes out the scene where... Dreyfus where Neary is trashing the garden and throwing it all in to make the model Mm. and puts in a scene where he actually loses it about him losing it where he shows he's frustrated that this is all consuming of him Mm. and I feel that would make a huge difference but that wasn't the theatrical cut that went out at first Mm. that became this much loved film that was one that came later Mm. but yeah I found Dreyfus's character lacked sympathy for me. What I will say is that despite being bored for like 60% of the film the 40% of the film that I loved I loved I found quite magical the scene where the UFO is playing all the music and obviously Mm. they do a little bit of the Jaws theme tune in there I mean hello Mm. love that I actually did find that quite magical I found it quite enchanting what about you oh Mickey it was lost on me I guess the end is like it's pretty, isn't it? There's lights and stuff, but I don't think it's I don't think it's aged like the special effects haven't aged terribly well and I mean they look kinda hammy now, don't they? The aliens I look thought they hadn't hammy. aged terribly badly. The aliens look terrible. Like, I'd have I'd have done without seeing the little nanas. But the, the, the light show is still lovely, yeah. Yeah, the spaceship was alright. That actually, in fairness, the spaceship was alright. But the little nanas did sort of ruin it because you're just like, fucking hell, is this the best you could do? <laughs> now knowing that they are a group of six year old girls, they do look like they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They yeah, are just no, sort of shuffling around, aren't they? <laughs> and like, oh that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, fair enough. I think, yeah, like the, the, I guess so. But I think that the problem was it was just, and I know I talk about this all the time. Like, obviously, I want all films to be ninety minutes, brilliant, lovely stuff. But as long as they move with pace and as long as they can carry it, that film could not carry being that long. It was too long. It the first bit was too long, and I think if you had taken young kids in to watch that, they'd have been like absolutely besides themselves by the time like any of the action actually started. Yeah, yeah. You know, I understand that some movies have to be slow paced for a reason to build up to something. And I totally get the whole anticipation, that tension, is it ominous? Mm. And why it is paced the way it is. But I still feel like just making it that bit faster would have made it a better film. Ark at me telling Spielberg who made his $300 million (laughs) movie how he could have made it a bit better. I hope he's listening. He loves the podcast. Yeah. So Jen. I'm not even going to bother asking you about the women because no one gives a shit about them. So Mm. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, rated or dated? Well, no, it is dated. It's massively dated. He's a prick to his wife. He's a prick to his kids. He cops off with someone else. Like there's no kind of, there's no women in it that like it's, you know, it is dated. And also 
I didn't enjoy it, I have to say. But I also think, you know, like, to be fair to Spielberg, I'm sure that this film is, like, absolutely massively dear to the hearts of many, many, many people and, Mm -hmm. like, much, much loved. And, you know, I love Kindergarten Cop, so who am I to judge? (laughs) It's a question I ask myself every time I talk to you about films, Jen. (laughs) It is dated, but the bits of it that I liked, I really, really liked. I'm glad I watched it. I'm glad it exists. I agree with you that it is a film that a lot of people hold very dear, but, you know, nostalgia is an incredibly powerful drug. Yeah. Next week, Mm. it is the choice of Hannah Dunleavy, who, as we all know, is a welder by day, dancer by night. That's right. (laughs) We are watching 1983's Flashdance. What a feeling, Jen. What a feeling. I've never seen it, Mick. I have seen it. A million times. I was obsessed as a child, but I'm sure we'll touch on whether that was appropriate and what the fuck my mum was up to <laughs> next week. Standard issue for all women. <laughs>